Yeah, well, you guys were doing some some GameStop bits, right? Yeah. Was it a bit? I mean, Hunter I was. <laughs> it might have been. I don't know. Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slang and Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? When you have your first win streak of the year and you're a UC basketball fan, that makes it a great day to be a Cincinnati basketball fan. <laughs> I'm not hitting that punchline for you, but indeed it is, sir. Hummer, there's only one way to celebrate a win streak. There's only one way to really celebrate the Bearcats just being back in action. And that's to talk to our old friend, Justin Williams of The Athletic. He joined the Justin, podcast again, hum. Justin Williams, the winner of the uh, Ohio Sports man broadcaster of the universe uh winner of best person who writes about sports in the state of ohio and as you'll find out you know self-proclaimed best writer in in history so uh congrats to justin love having him on the podcast every time he comes on really honestly i i thought it was our best conversation yet with him so I, i'll i'll be curious what people think we get into a lot of topics about how the Bearcats have played since returning, their health, um, tweets. You know, we, we get into it all. I think it's a good conversation. Uh, but before we get into that, Hummer, we need to pay homage. Founded in 2007, Homage turns back the clock with shout outs to eclectic moments and personalities in sports, music, and popular culture. From Johnny Bench to Nikki Van Exel. Homage tells stories of triumph, individualism, and Johnny Hustle, preserving the old school and creating new legacies. And Coomer, coming up on February 11th, check out the basketball pack. Talking about practice. Don't fake the funk. Ball don't lie. Pay homage to who said them first, Allen Iverson, Shaq, Rashid Wallace, and pick yours up today. These go on sale February 11th. I am personally pumped about talking about practice because, as you all know, listening to the podcast, I am a 76ers fan as well as our beloved Bearcats. So go Allen Iverson. I'm talking about practice. Coomer, what are you picking up? Well, I'm all about the ball don't lie to you, right? That's one of the most iconic expressions in basketball history, and nothing truer had ever been said about the game of basketball. But you know what? The pop culture tees this month are fire, Beetlejuice, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm seeing a Donato shirt. Who doesn't love Donato's? And it's, you know, local to Ohio. Honestly, the, the collections and homage are amazing. Go to www.homage.com to check them out. Great partnership with Homage going on here. You can support the podcast by supporting the sponsors that help us out. What do you need to tell the folks, Hummer? 
Well, in addition to shopping at homage.com, you can also pick up gear in six stores across Ohio, including their Over the Vine, Over the Rhine Vine Street location right here in Cincinnati. You know, every time I say that, I, you would think it gets a little easier, but sometimes you just get up, tripped up on the Rhine Vine Street location. But use code SLANGIN at the checkout. Let them know we sent you. They'll give you 21% off your entire order. It's a great way to kick off this year. And look. don't forget about National Chili Day, February 25th. National, National Chili Day, plenty of Skyline shirts to pick from. Go to homage.com. Since he, type in slangin at checkout, S L A N G I N, 21% off. Thank us later. We are now joined by a friend of the podcast, a gentleman who has been on here several times before now a prestigious winner of an look, Justin, I don't even remember the name of it, but I know it's prestigious because Dan Horde has won the same award four years running. I believe uh, Justin Williams staff writer at the athletic is back on the podcast. Justin, thanks for coming on the pod again. So prestigious. You couldn't even remember the name. It just yeah. it tells you everything you need to know. Right. There. <laughs> I'm I'm outside of the circle. I'm not I'm not in the game. You know, I'm not a real media person. I'm I'm so bad at this that I didn't pull it up beforehand. But uh, it was, we all uh, know you are at your job. It was greatest greatest writer of all time. That was the uh, award. Oh, they give it out. They give it out once a millennium, and I, I brought it home. So you heard it here. We're on <laughs> with the greatest writer of all time. He has surpassed Vonnegut. Uh, he has surpassed J.K. Bums. All bums. <laughs> Probably it'd a, probably been better if I just tried to Google your name first instead of trying to Google the name of the award. <laughs> you're you're going to get a lot of a lot of hockey news. If I was going to guess, I think it has something to do with like N A I. Those are the those are the letters I'm I'm picturing in the acronym. I'm trying to put the photographic memory to use. We'll have it by the end of the podcast. But Justin, you you went through with all of us the 25 day layoff without Bearcats basketball. Um, Obviously, there were, it was it was dark times there for the program. We all missed it. Maybe some more than others. Uh, this podcast certainly did. And now we're joined. You're on the podcast here, and we are about to talk about the Bearcats' two-game win streak. So my first question to you is, is this win streak more of a product of who we played, the two opponents, Temple and Tulane, or is it a sign this team is starting to turn the corner? Or there's a third option. Is it Rob Banks? <laughs> Can I say yes to all of the above? <laughs> don't for, don't forget Sam Martin either. The Sam Martin the walk too. On, walk on power was strong uh, in that Tulane game. Very um, strong. I definitely think they benefited greatly of playing Temple and Tulane coming back. Uh, you know, I think even if it we're not talking Houston, if we're talking SMU, Tulsa. Memphis, those teams, things probably look a little bit different when they come back. So I don't want to put too much importance on it. I do think a couple things stood out mainly separately from each game. I thought they played a lot tougher uh, in that first win over Temple. Just I thought they bullied Temple a little bit. And I, I, I literally don't think we've seen that from them this year in, in any game. I can't think of a game where they were kind of the aggressor. Um and some of that's like, you know, I don't, I know it sounds a little cliche to like, oh, we out toughed them or out them. But I just, I think if you watch that game, like they, they seemed like they were tougher, the tougher team and they hadn't looked that way. So I thought that was a good sign. Um, and then I thought uh, 
the way Keith played for the most part uh, against Tulane was a really good sign, which I wrote about just in terms of getting away from some of the stuff that I think he was really struggling with in terms of like ISO ball. And yeah, he, he chucked a couple jab step threes that, you know, that's going to happen when you have the ball as much as he does, but that was less the focus and more kind of the um, exception in that game. And he didn't get in foul trouble. I think he played what 30, five minutes or 29 minutes something like I think 29 minutes um but he had two fouls and so I think if you can put some of those things together moving forward um you know the most intriguing thing moving into this break was Zach Harvey and he obviously hasn't played coming back so we don't know what that looks like but saw some positive pieces uh and and I think that's what the rest of the season is going to be all about not to say that you know you're completely just looking ahead to next year but I think if they can start to move in that direction that's a good thing and like let's be honest they had won three games before the break they've now won two in a row so even if they're uglier against bad teams uh i certainly don't think this is the season to be picky so i i I think people should feel encouraged we'll see memphis is a better team we'll see how things look when they they play them on thursday but uh you know for to be upset about winning ugly with kind of the the circumstances they've gone through against bad teams you know i think you take what you can get I'm not going to, I'm not going to be too picky. So I'm actually someone who is, is pleased with the two victories given all the circumstances, obviously when you factor in the layoff, um, look, I think we had extremely low expectations about this team coming back from 25 days off. And I think that most people would have expected the team to continue to struggle, um, and probably take some losses early on as they work their way back into shape. And the, and the fact is, they somehow pulled out two victories. So I think we should be taking it. And to be fair to the team, before the layoff, there were some signs of life, in my opinion. So I would date it all the way back to Tulsa. And in that game is the first time we actually saw them get their turnovers under control. We saw the fouls start getting cleaned up a little bit. They just couldn't make a shot in that game. Then you have the, the matchup against SMU. You see Brandon go small. He's now, he's since, you know, he hasn't been going as small and and we have COVID to probably blame for a lot of that. Uh, But it does seem like the team is starting to play better. And I'd say the biggest Keith Williams, you mentioned, I mean, he was a standout against Tulane, but David DeJulius has been much more assertive from a scoring standpoint since he returned. And that's a bit more what I expected when he joined the team this season. Yeah, and I would say shoot like a shooting standpoint, even more than scoring. I mean, obviously he had 26 in that Temple game, but my biggest thing was just he wasn't shooting great. But it's not like the you know the team was winning or or scoring in bunches in spite of that. So you know, like let him go, let him kind of shoot his way out of a slump, or you know, let him start a game two for seven and and try and bounce back. And I mean, he I think he started okay against Temple, but just the fact that he didn't, you know, I don't I don't know like quit scoring they, they kind of kept focusing and kept feeding him and yeah some of that was they hadn't really practiced so I, I think their game plan was like get out there and you know fire it up and and he kind of went into that and he talked after the game like he hadn't been out he you know he'd been able to do at least one-on-one workouts because he hadn't been isolated or anything like that so it makes sense why he was the guy to do that but I'm with you I mean this year next year he's a huge piece of what they're going to do and you could see his talent early in the season, especially like, you know, getting games or 10, five and five, like that's, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, not that it, it obviously scoring 26 isn't either, but it was good to kind of see him get going and for the team to 
maybe embrace and focus on him a little bit as kind of that go-to guy because you know forget next year I think the team has a better chance if he's kind of the main offensive focal point and Keith can play off of that which we saw a little bit against Tulane they're playing zone so it's it's you know not the you know easiest you know I guess way to look at it that way because the the defense is different but I think if Keith is less the focus ball handler and more you know the guy playing off of the Julius uh I think you, he's much more likely to have those 20 point games than he would be otherwise. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. That was, that's a good sign as well. The biggest difference between Keith and DeJulius and, and for those wondering, I mean, the usage rate between those two, I think there's about a 10 point difference. Keith is around, I've been, I've been beating this drum, but Keith has a usage rate that kind of rivals Jaron Cumberland from his last few seasons with the Bearcats. And the biggest difference is obviously their ability to create for others. DeJulius has that element to his game in spades in fact, I would say to the, in terms of how he's played this season, Brandon's alluded to it. He seems deferential to the point of making a point to be the, you know, old school point guard facilitate, but basketball's moved to a place where it's okay to be that lead guard and be a significant scoring threat for the team. And by him being more of a threat, it seems when he does it, it just seems like the offense functions better. And I don't know if you have stats to back that up, that would support that. Or if that's where Brandon sees it heading, do you know if that's kind of what his his intention is for the rest of the season from DeJulius? I think part of it was DeJulius had never really been a point guard. You know, like that's not what he played. He handled the ball uh, some at Michigan, but he was kind of like six man microwave, come off the bench, off the ball, score, you know, guard. And so I think part of it was, you know, as as he's trying to find an identity and the team's trying to find an identity, he really embraced like I got to be the point guard. Um, and I think was maybe a little bit hesitant to come across right away as like this ball dominant, you know, attacking scoring point guard as, as opposed to, you know, someone who's not going to get his teammates involved or start the offense or whatever. And I think a lot of what we've seen with DeJulius specifically and honestly with Keith the past two games, that's the way things were going even before this shutdown. Um, I think we would have seen some of that, whatever that, I think that first game or that next game was supposed to be, it might've been temple, you know, before things started to shut down, I think we would have started to see the offense go in that direction more, maybe not as starkly as it looked, you know, coming back off of 25 days, but you know, Brandon and the staff recognized this. Um, But I think when he had three weeks to be in a gym with the Julius by himself on a lot of occasions, he was able to just kind of hit that home a little bit more, but I think this is what he wanted to see. And, and I'll give the staff credit because we saw it last year with how things changed with uh, Jaron. I don't know that it's something like this is Brandon's overall philosophy. I think he just realizes with the personnel we have right now, especially if, you know, guys like Zach are going to be out, our, our best offensive option is, you know, to Julius, you're handling the ball, but you're also attacking and you're being the aggressive main scorer. So I think it's less like this is, I want always my port guard to play this way moving forward. Uh, Cause I don't think he would want that for someone like Mikey Saunders, but more just him like he did last year saying, what gives us the best chance to win? And to Julius isn't the same player as Cumberland either, but the idea of like, you're going to have the ball in your hands and you're also going to be kind of the main creator and scorer. They clearly feel like that's their, their best path forward. And, and I would agree with them. I guess my question would be, why does it take so long for us to figure this this kind of stuff out? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, if you ask that in a public setting, you're going to 
get all the things trotted out like well it was you know COVID this summer so we didn't have all the normal you know preseason time to work with them and I do think there's some truth to that I I think a lot of it though is also just kind of like sometimes you have to show players instead of telling them like I I do believe that heading into the season you know Keith and Chris vote were like looked at as the two best players on the team I don't think that was just lip service you know publicly in in the media Um, but I think as it became clear like actually Chris Vogt is kind of holding this team back in a lot of ways because they're best when they get out and run um, and and just try and score in transition and not play in the half court because their half court struggles and and you know Chris causes some issues with that Um, but I think as a coach you're you're so much um as a staff, you're, you're working with mindsets and psyches and egos as much as you are just game plans. And so things might not work as well if you're just like, all right, you're gonna have to trust me here. But, you know, Chris, you're actually going to come off the bench and, and play, you know, 15 minutes a game as opposed to start and play 30 minutes a game. Um, so, yeah, I think some of that stuff maybe could have gotten to a little bit quicker, uh, but I don't think it was I think it's probably a combination of yeah, we, we didn't have the time in the preseason that we normally would. You don't always know what you're having with some of these you know, young guys, Tari, Mikey Saunders, but also, you know, I think they thought Jeremiah was going to be better. I don't think anyone realized he was going to be this good or this much of a focal. And so some of the stuff you just figure out as you go and you kind of have to change on the fly. And sometimes it doesn't change quite as quick as you want it to, or honestly quite as quick as it should. Um, But you're also this season working on a shorter schedule than you normally would. You don't have some of those cupcake tomato can home games where you can work some of that stuff out so I think all of those things came together to be like all right it it took 10 games in a 25 game season to figure out what maybe would have otherwise taken five or seven games in a normal season or something like that yeah I feel like I just want to push back just a little bit on it just because you know not for nothing we've been talking about the Chris vote problem since game you know game two uh you know, of, of not running the, the ball through the post and, and really trying to play that small ball lineup, you know, almost two games before they, they ran it out there against SMU. Um, but I think over the last two games, I think we saw the perfect role for Chris Vogt. You know, go in, get some rebounds, do be a presence down low, but don't force it. You know, when it's open, get in the ball because all of a sudden it does open up opportunities and they're not just going to be double teaming him every game because they, they know we're just going to be throwing the ball down there. So I, I think there's a, a balance with Chris Vogt, and I think it, they did find it. But I do find if I that's just I find it interesting that I do feel a lot of the fan base has been asking why we did try to throw the ball into Chris Vogt for as long as we did. No, I'm with you, and and I agree because I I never thought before the season began that the vote, you know, rap pairing was was going to work. I just you know that 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 isn't fit the style that they want to play and it doesn't fit the style. I think that would work defensively against any team. Um, so yeah, I, I'm with you. And, you know, and honestly, like there's probably some stubbornness, um, you know, that, that comes along with the decision-making, like, you know, if you believe something's going to work and just as it takes a couple games to show a player that it doesn't work, maybe sometimes it takes a couple games for, you know, yeah. a, a coach to realize it doesn't work. I remember last year uh, and Brandon talked about this, like, I think it was Dwyer um, assistant coach who, early in the season was like, we got to get away from some of this like 
ball screen motion offense, the stuff that Brandon wants to run that he kind of, you know, ran really well at NKU. Um, and he, Brandon talked about that, that Dwyer was like, I don't think it's going to work with this team. We need to move away from it. Um, but sometimes when that's what you are, you know, that's kind of your formula and, and you believe in it, it, it might take you a little bit longer. So I agree with you on that part that maybe some of the stuff should have happened faster. And I also agree with you. I thought the, it probably, you know, I don't know, statistically I'd have to look, but I think this season the Tulane game was votes best game just in terms of the impact he had. And part of that I think was for whatever reason, this team struggles against zone defense. Like it almost just seems to break their brain when it happens and they pass the ball around the, you know, the, the perimeter They're the way that um, UC plays against zone defense is the stereotype that my wife just thinks basketball is, which is you pass it around the outside and then you chuck a three. And like, it's obviously not that uh, simplistic, but sometimes when you see play, plays against zone, it is unfortunately that simplistic. And for whatever reason, they were just like, all right, we're going to throw Chris down on the block. Even if he doesn't shoot it or do anything with it, like looking to get the ball inside, then people are going to cut and move off of that. And it, I think it changed uh, their approach on offense a little bit. Uh, it doesn't help that they also are terrible entry post passers. This, this team is just, there's just a, a weak point for them. Um, just passing, but you're right. Just passing in general, frankly. Like yeah, they, unfortunately. I, I did listen to Brandon on his radio show tonight, and he talked about how many guys he sees break open and we just don't make the pass or we make the wrong pass. We're on a fast break, and Jeremiah Davenport, I forget who's streaking down the right-hand side, but he flips it's it Keith, left. I think. Yeah, and, and there's and there's two defenders there, and it gets deflected, and it becomes a mess. I mean, that was just a microcosm for the decision-making on this team. Um, well, there yeah. was – I think Mason hit Tari in the two-lane game, like drove baseline and kind of whipped it around a defender to Tari, and it was a good pass – but this season, it was it was like the almost the equivalent of that Jaron Cumberland full court bounce pass against Houston last year. Like that's what it felt like because they just don't have that many passes like that this season. That's what the um, Sam Martin play felt like this game, right? Like <laughs> Sam Martin example. didn't have a ton of standout plays in this game, but he came in, catches the ball on the baseline, takes a couple of dribbles, and then feeds. I think it was Tari for a layup yeah. and one, and it it was so jarring to see it because it was just simply competent right it wasn't it wasn't a spectacular play but it was like a thumbs down bounce pass like what you learn in camp growing (laughs) up and everyone was like oh my god and i'm not old school like you need to throw chest passes and bounce passes in the pocket like that's not what i'm typically looking for but this team just needs to simplify and the turnovers have to be cut down and that's been my biggest frustration you know hummer alluded to the chris vote running the offense through him um quick digression when you guys were talking about that, I thought about my wife and I re-watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And you get to the end of the Return of the King and Frodo's holding the ring. He's he's completely beaten down, beat up. His, he's, he's wearing the burden of the ring. And yet at the last second he turns around, he's not going to destroy the ring. The image that popped in my head was Brandon as Frodo and the ring was not Chris Vogt, but running the offense through Chris Vogt. And he just couldn't bring himself to destroy the ring and to stop doing that. Um, I hope we're heading that direction. Hummer, I think I, I, you're a little more optimistic than me. I hope to see us move back to the small ball lineup as guys get back in shape and are back in the lineup. But um, I mean, I how, kinda, is two, how is two for five, six points, four rebounds in 16 minutes, not effective? No, 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 he was. He was clearly I mean, that, effective. That's effect, I, I think that's effective. I think that's exactly what we're looking for with Chris Vogel. Right, but I and think, it was a good matchup for that game in particular, too. There there will be games where, you know, that he, he doesn't fit as well on, on the offensive end. Well, um, even the last game, 
where he did score points, he was still, I think, effective with the minutes because he had some shots that they're, they're going to fall sometimes. You know, you're going to miss some shots that happens, but he, he still basically had the same exact game, except he, he had a couple tougher shots that he just didn't, he just didn't finish on. But other than that, I still think he played that same role. In retrospect, the worst thing for Chris Vote was how well he played to start the year last year because he wasn't even supposed to be able to play last year. Like they legitimately right. did not think he was going to get a waiver. He gets a waiver. He's starting the season. You know, Jaron's having all these issues. And I think a lot of it was teams just weren't ready for it. Like they, they hadn't game planned him, they hadn't scouted him. So those first non-conference games, they're just dumping the ball in and he's turning and, you know, making hook shots. And all of a sudden he turns into like the leading scorer focal point of the <laughs> offense. And he was never supposed to be that. And so then it sets expectations for everyone, for fans, for media, for him, for the, the team. Um, and I think he's much more the player we've seen the past two games than anything close to that. But, you know, that's, that's the first impression everyone got of. Agreed. Yeah. I think the expectations and, and the number of minutes, all that played into just frustrating times for the fans. I, I blame it less on Chris vote more on Brandon's usage of him. I think that he could be the ideal backup big who comes in, crash the boards, be a big body, lay some wood, hard fouls. Uh, you know, that's kind of, his, and people will love it. Like, cause that's, they will love that. They love the flexing. They love the toughness that he seems to bring, but it's just gotta be in a, in a different role. Um, you know, when Brandon came aboard the becoming the head coach of the Bearcats, one of the first things he said was, that Keith Williams was the ideal player for his system. We're 1.5 years in, basically, in terms of basketball being played. Do you think he still feels that same way? Like, do you see, do you, is he the ideal player for what, what John Brandon views as his system? I think athletically, yeah. I mean, just, you know, height, his, his quickness, his, vertical his you know kind of fast twitch springiness i think all of that is is great but honestly like that's any college coach is is gonna want that but yeah so if you're pressing full court and you know want to play quick keith keith williams is great for that he's a guy who can handle the ball a little bit he can guard the four on the other side you know you can kind of put him in four guard lineups because if he wants to he can defend and rebound um yeah i i just don't know if if he's literally going to like create a player in a lab, I, you know, I don't know that Keith Williams would be what he what he brings out of it. Um, but I, I do think there there are a lot of things that Keith does well that that fit well with with Brandon's system. Um, but I also think that there's you know this season, I, I do think he is their best player and leading scorer. I just think we've seen things go much better when you're not you know giving him high usage rate and running him in ISO situations. And and he's much better if it's like a fast break cut. Yeah, exactly. And that was easier because Jaron was there and Trey was there. And, um, you know, now I think a lot of it was, yeah, he came back to be the guy. So there's almost this pressure to like give him the opportunity to do that. And he can still be the guy without being that version of the guy, I think. And, uh, again, I think that's some of the stuff they were moving towards even before the layoff, but I think we've seen since they've, they've come back, like there's an understanding that, and he, you know, Brandon kind of alluded to it on a side reference. I think when he was talking about Rob Banks, which was like, Rob had to adapt to this situation. Keith had to adapt this situation. And I think there's a lot wrapped up into that, but I also think part of that is the understanding of like, we're going to have to change the way you are used and play a little bit. Um, and I think we're seeing that. 
Yeah, I love that. I I'm, I did not ask that question with the intention of kind of slandering Keith, but because I, I mean, going back to last year, I loved his contributions. He's gotten better every season. It's just that this season, the increased usage has come with increased inefficiencies. And I think we're kind of, we're seeing the limitations of what, what can, what you can accomplish and achieve offensively with Keith as your lead dog. Um, so and, and like Brandon, what Brandon's been right on is, is Keith Williams defensively, like the lapses are just completely unforgivable, especially like we saw against Xavier and early in the season. To me, the best sign that we saw from Keith Williams the last two games is he's starting to crash the boards again. And when he's active on the boards, he's active defensively, we're almost guaranteed to get a better Keith Williams offensively. It just, it's, they seem to go hand in hand. So if they can find a way to pull that out of him going forward, you know, we're going to all be loving Keith Williams game again because he's easily the most exciting player on the team. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece, I think like when he, when Keith first announced that he was coming back and I talked to Brandon for it and he talked about, you know, last year, their analytics basically in the last 10 minutes of games or five minutes of games, whatever it was, Keith was like, you know, an elite defender, best defender in the conference. And you still see that now. I, I, you know, I, I think it was the end of the SMU game, right? Or, you know he's had stretches towards the end of games and the temple game was another good one too where he just makes you know great defensive plays great individual block rebound rotation whatever it is but the problem is they just have not been able to like extract that out of him you know in the first 30 minutes of games and part of that is it's tough to do you know it's easy to kind of lock in and and take the the main guy on the other side when it's you know you know crunch time um but even if it's not quite to that level, I'm totally with you that he is a guy when he is more locked in on, on the defensive side, it helps on the offense. And part of that is because it helps them spark fast breaks. And he, he really is like, if you look at the advanced synergy analytics, he is an elite transition player because of his athleticism and his ability to finish at the rim. And they're going to get more of those opportunities if, you know, he's playing really good defense. So that, that all stuff makes sense. It's just getting it to, actually happen, which is part of the challenge. So I, I did want to kind of, um, you wrote a good piece on the athletic, you know, you, you write the gamers, but then there was, before we came back, you had a piece about how to kind of put this season and evaluate it going forward. Um, it was already weird. It's been weird since John Brandon got here, right? He got here in the first season he coached, um, you've got Jaron Cumberland with the coach's decision benching. You've got the three quarter shot against Colgate, you've got all sorts of weird speculation about what their relationship is like. Then coming into this season, that season gets canceled early because of COVID this season starts late. We've got no fans in the stands. There's countless ways. This season has been weird early in the season. Jaron Cumberland sends out an inst of, you know, pretty direct inst uh, message about Brandon in terms of questioning his ability to lead this team. Um, how, how do we like, how, how do we as fans evaluate Brannon and the coaching staff and this team? Like, how do you keep it in perspective? Because you can't deny the, the, the circumstance of the, the uh, circumstances of this season and a team that struggled, like we did to start the year three and seven, usually you're counting on, continual improvement. We're going to get better. We're going to rally at practice. We're going to change roles. We're going to get more reps. Well, then they have a month long break. So how do you like, what, what's your advice to, to fans who are trying to actually be fair, but also honest in their assessment of, of the team? 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's a tough question. I do think there's, and this isn't Cincinnati specific. I think if you are a team that's having a great season, like Gonzaga, Baylor, Illinois, you know, whoever, whoever that is, you, you clutch onto that and and you're grateful that and you hold it. I think it's hard to hold too much of this season against teams, whether it's Cincinnati or Duke or Kentucky or, you know, Michigan state's the weirder one to me. Cause I just, I feel like they should be better, but again, like, you know, I, you, it's hard to know what these teams are dealing with. I certainly don't have all of, you know, the insight and I've tried to put out there what I could in terms of like what it's been like for this team, you know, this season, especially over that month period, but it's, it's really rough. Like just what, what the kids are, are going through. I, I, I know I feel like I repeat it over and over again, but that's just because I don't know if people fully understand how challenging this season has been mentally, physically, you know, emotionally for, for everyone involved, especially the players. So I do think it's hard, you know, considering he came in, you know, the staff came in with a slightly shortened off season last year, you know, coming in as a new coach, having to turn over a lot of the roster, having to do that again. And not, you know, some of that is on what they inherited and in terms of, you know, Keith Williams and, and Mamadou are literally the only holdovers in year two of, of the previous regime. Um, and Mamadou was gone for a little bit too, but part of that's also on them because some of the transfers they brought in just clearly didn't work or, or didn't mesh. Um, Jason Rolla, Rapalus, Ivanowskis, like that's, you can't just completely put it um, on the past, but I, I do think you have to give this staff a little bit of time, not like, just completely excusing it you know you can be critical and ask questions along the way like what's going on with 2021 recruiting because I know a lot of fans are asking questions about that and I think that's totally fair um, but I also think anything that's like you know oh this was a, a bad hire or um, you know, a change needs to be made or something like that it, it just feels like it would have been too soon for that anyways but definitely this season kind of under these circumstances I think that's jumping the gun a little bit so I guess my answer would be fans should be um, patient but at the same time vigilant and not afraid to be critical or or ask questions um, but not necessarily expect to have the answers right away if that if any of that made sense at all no, it, it makes sense to me. I, I'm being, I'm kind of moving forward like this. Like I, I think I've built in a, a level of patience and understanding about what COVID is bringing. I don't think like from an individual player standpoint, I think we have to be understanding that different players and humans are going to react differently to this based on their tolerance for risk, based on how being socially isolated is, is impacting them. I think the easiest thing from a fan perspective to do though, is to, to watch Brandon's decision-making in terms of who he's playing and how he's combining guys. What's our strategy against this type of opponent? What kind of in-game adjustments are happening? Um, those are the things that I think is fair to, they are fair to evaluate. And, you know, there's, there's things that have been questioned, but I also saw some good adjustments as, as we got on, got through the season pre COVID break. And, uh, and now we'll see how things go the rest of the year. But I, I definitely think it's not a, you know, just a free pass, no matter what, because at the end of the day, you have to make sure the program is in the right hands. Right. So you have to be you know, vigilant in your evaluation of what's going on. But um, at the same time, understanding that maybe the player development side is going to be slowed by COVID. Yeah. And, you know, I think if you look at last year, the way that season started, there were questions and you know fair questions about like what's going on with Jaron and you know why are some of the why have some of the transfers not 
you know, panned out Chris McNeil, Jay Sirola, Trevor Moore leaves kind of in, in, in the middle of the season. But you can ask all those questions. And then what happens at the end? Well, they clearly figured it out. Like they, you know, put Jaron in a, in a role to succeed. He ends up being a first team all conference player. Clearly Trey Scott, you know, really developed extremely well uh, in that season. And yeah, I realize the season ended um, prematurely, but like they want to share the conference regular season title. They got the top seed in, in the tournament. And based on how that season ended, that's really the most they could possibly accomplish. So Yes, there were some questions at the beginning of the season, but I think it ended up just about, I mean, you know, they won, they won a championship. I don't think, I think sometimes people are forgetting or glossing over that fact um, because of some of the oddities of what went on with Jaron and, and all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, this year's the same way. I think you can ask questions, but I think we have seen adjustments that you alluded to. I think we've seen improvements and then, you know, there's also uncontrollable stuff. Like you start to see Zach Harvey, you know, over a four game stretch, man, is this kid figuring it out? Well, then they go on a 25 day layoff and he's on another week layoff when they come back from that. Like that's, that's no one's fault. That's just the circumstances. Same thing with recruiting, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I have the same kind of curiosity as of like, what is the 2021 recruiting going to look like? Or, you know, why did some of these transfers not totally pan out? But I also look and see like, Tari Eason is going to be a stud. You know, he's he's a legit four-star, really talented player who John Brandon brought in. Yeah, there's some circumstances around the Zach Harvey, you know, acquisition, but he's, you know, if you were just asking UC fans, like, what do you what do you guys think about this when it happened? Like, that's a, a four-star top 75 player, top 50 player that they brought in. Um, so I think there are right questions to ask. I think sometimes people, you know, default to like, well, they're not tough enough and the, they don't have a good enough recruiting and they're kind of using this rose-tinted nostalgia of what UC basketball has been like for 30 years and, and projecting that forward. And and I don't know that that's fair, um, which is, again, not to say that there shouldn't be questions asked or, um, you know, things kept an eye on. Bringing in Harvey and Tari, and I'll let you go, Hummer, but bringing in Harvey and Tari in your first year – um, is a win or two years, I guess, but bringing those two type talents in to me is a sign that the recruiting can be good. I think what we're seeing now is maybe questionable decision-making in terms of, you know, he's kind of maintained the line of, I'm not going to make a mistake, right? I can't see him. If we're not going to offer anyone, we can't see in person. And the drawback to that is, well, might not actually get any recruits then. And so what's the plan at that point? Hummer, what, what were you going to say? I was gonna say I'm totally guilty of the the rose colored rose tinted glasses and you know and because when we were getting towards that that six cape or when was it the I don't even want to remember this period in time but like the five game losing streak the longest losing streak we've had since you know McCronin's first or second year with or third year with the with the squad and we were just seeing some of the stuff where it's like we watching guys just to drive to the hoop, no one boxing out. Just like, it almost looks like we're the basics. And I think that's, you know, definitely guilty of saying, all right, well, this is a toughness issue. This is a culture issue. This is something that, that you should just be doing. But at the same time, to your guys' point, we do forget that we have, this is an awesome team that we have. This, this is, there's a reason why we came back from a 25 game stretch, played two walk-ons and beat Temple. Like in Temple may not be that good. That's fine, but we, we did Temple. do that. Yeah, Temple, we beat them. Well, I, I had some friends in Philadelphia <laughs> who went to Temple, and I did call them after that game, and I said, "How's it feel to be beat by walk-ons?" And 
and they weren't happy about it. But I, I, I want to put that into perspective where it's like, we did do that. We came off of a 25 game layoff where we literally, I don't think had any expectations of, of winning that first game back. And we did. And we looked in my mind, we looked pretty good. There, there's some things that obviously need to be worked out, but I didn't think we looked terrible. And I think that's where this season I'm, I'm going to grade it on a curve is basically what I'm going to do. I'm just going to look at it. It's a curve. We going forward, I think we want to see just improvements of the basics and we want to see get guys better. Uh, and Frank, I just want to see more Tari Eason. Yeah. True. And I, I think that's fair. And, you know, to the recruiting point, I, I think you got to put DeJulius in there too. Like True. that, that yeah. was a, a coup on the transfer market for, for them to, to get him. And, you know, if, I don't know if you guys want to talk more recruiting or not, I will say, and part of this um, is just as frustrating for, for me as it is, you know, for fans, Brandon doesn't like to talk about recruiting. So I think sometimes that can be seen as like, oh, there's nothing going on recruiting wise. And I, I think that's less the case, which is just that he, he, he doesn't like to put it out there. He doesn't like to talk about it. Um, I don't know if it's a superstitious thing, if it's like, you know, um, uh, less attention thing. I'm not sure. Uh, but that that's not a new development. Um, that's I think that's just a, a, a personal thing for him. And, and some programs and coaches, you know, you get every little bit of information out there. And I don't think John Brandon likes to operate that way. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, you don't want other teams necessarily knowing who you're going after, what you're, what you're, you know, what you're targeting, maybe. But you know, I don't. I, as a media guy. member, I don't agree with that approach. But um, I have learned that coaches don't make their decisions based on what I think would be would be best. So, you know, so it goes. I don't know. It seems sometimes it seems to us that they do. Last year, we called given you know letting the Jaron Cumberland train just just roll, you know, let, letting him be the uh, the master of the offense. This year we've been clamoring for the small ball. We, we called all this stuff a couple games early. I think he does listen to all of us. Maybe just this podcast specifically. Yeah, just us. <laughs> so here's a question. Something or nothing? How do you think John Brandon feels? Is Does he think it's something or is it nothing when Tari Eason posts an Instagram photo of him in a full – USC Jersey, something or nothing. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, I don't, I, I don't think he, I think nothing. I'm, I, th I think, I think coach Brandon pays attention to more of that stuff to that stuff more than uh, Mick Cronin did. But I think, I don't think they put too much weight behind like what someone posts on social media um you think they've muted some accounts one in particular <laughs> i'll just say it i mean jared cumberland what he posted he no posted, not uh, even that one i wasn't actually oh not even that one <laughs> no, i was staying on the tar eastern topic i think they have people that monitor that stuff um and probably, you know, as a as a head coach, I don't think this is specific to Brandon. I think a lot of times head coaches will be like, just let me know, you know, when you see something. And then there's some poor assistant who's like fifth job responsibility is monitoring this stuff. And they come to him and they're like, hey, so-and-so posted this. And they're like, I do not care. Why do you keep bringing this stuff to me? And then, you know, the next day they're like, hey, just make sure you keep me in the loop on, on what anyone posts. I, I don't envy being a college coach uh, aside from like the paychecks. My, my advice is grain of salt. Um, I'm going to use a prop for this next question. 
Oh, and gosh. before we before we got on the podcast, you referred to Hummer and I's bit. You called it a bit, our, our GME bit and going to the moon and diamond hands. And I had to tell you, that's that's more indicative of my understanding of the stock market than your guys. Well, for uh, me, of it. yeah, for me, it's got bit vibes for Hummer. This is this is his life like this is Hummer's the real deal. So I kind of want to make an analogy. I'm going to pull out my Lego. If you go to our video on our website, I'm going to buy off your you might have to trump your background for that. Oh, you're right. I've got a huge Lego rocket ship here and who we're assuming it's going to the moon. Besides Tari Eason, which freshman on the roster? Mason, we're going to count Gabe, um, Mikey, or Victor Locken. Like, who who are you? Who do you have diamond hands for? You're not selling no matter what. You give, believe give me the... it doesn't matter what we see this season. You have diamond hands. You are holding this stock no matter what. And we're not, Tari Eason's excluded because it's clear. Who else for the other freshmen? Who do you have diamond hands for, Justin? I need a I need a language of origin on diamond hands. Give me the give me the I'll, the I'll script spelling bee uh, it, definition. It, it means you're you're holding through all the all the roller coasters we're gonna see between you know them now the freshmen to them you know being a senior. You know they're gonna, there's gonna be ups and there's gonna be downs. For instance, right now I'm sure there's a lot of people who were. Who were tr- who are trending away from from Keith Williams, but we're gonna di- we're diamond handing Keith Williams because we know he's good. We know he's gonna have a great season, and we're not se- we're not selling Keith Williams uh, off this off this ride. We're we're keeping him to the finish here. Which one of these freshmen is just gonna? You you just believe so much they're gonna be the real deal. Other than Tari, because we already know he's the real deal, right? And it's <laughs> it's relative real deal. It's not saying that they'll be as good as. Tari Eason necessarily right it's just like like, you believe you believe in this guy as being a legitimate like high level college basketball player when he leaves UC let's assume they're all four-year players they're going to leave and have maybe a I'll put guys out there like Troy Copain or maybe fringe NBA high level college contributor guys okay so I I don't think this person fits that but I'm I I have diamond fingers for mason madsen i don't i don't know that mason's you know gonna be like a borderline nba prospect or is gonna be on the you know troy copain trey scott you know whatever kind of you know level you want to put it but just in terms of what he can add to this the team on both ends of the floor from a outside shooting standpoint from a on-ball defense uh, from a basketball IQ, from a being kind of that like, you know, just white guy that gets under your skin. I mean, you know, all the stuff that I wrote about and everyone talked about with him before the season, which are like, he's a pest, he's an irritant, and he's going to show some of that stuff. I think they need that, and I think they can really benefit from that. I mean, already I feel like we've seen it. I think he's played really well the past two games when he's been in. Um, I think from a basketball approach IQ standpoint, he fits really well with what John Brandon wants to do. I think this team desperately needs out, outside shooting, and I think he can offer some of that. And uh, I would hope that he'll get more opportunities and get more confident as that goes. But he hit a big three uh, the other day in the two-lane game. Um, but, you know, I, so yeah, I would say maybe not quite up to that the diamond hand standard that was uh, explained to me, but just in terms of what you know, if you're maximizing what his potential is, uh, I, I think Mason Madsen for sure. 
All right. So Justin says Mason Madsen is going to the NBA when his career is <laughs> over with UC. Diamond hands. I love it. Quick, quick tangent on that, which shows my lack of knowledge of NBA prospects. I wrote a story about Luke Kennard when he was a senior, just right up the road in Franklin. And his coach, you know, he was going to Duke then. He was obviously like, it was based around him breaking LeBron James, you know, mark in Ohio and kind of trying to catch some of the top. I think he ended up second or third. And his coach said something which was like, he's going to go to Duke and he's just going to light the world on fire and like it's what you a uh, high school coach says when the greatest player you've ever coached is going to duke and i was like hey, you know, it's, it's a nice quote but I, I don't know if i buy it and then like he was you know a lottery pick after his sophomore year and i i would have never guessed that he totally felt like the four-year duke player who bounces around the g league for a couple of years um, and some of that might be uh, stereotyping on my part but it's just that's kind of what he felt like and it, it goes to show that i i should not be an nba talent evaluator <laughs> How tall was he? How tall is Luke Kennard? Six five, six six. Okay. Now he's I mean, he, he signed, I think, a four year sixty-four million dollar deal with the Clippers, which I'm a pretty big NBA watcher. Huge overpay. Huge overpay. Yeah, like, I, I'll say he's he's probably been a little bit of a disappointment in terms of like where he was drafted, right? Right. But now he gets to really bring to life that rivalry with LeBron. It's the battle for LA. Luke Kennard right. versus LeBron James. We'll Put him on the happens. poster with LeBron. Right. <laughs> yeah. We'll see what happens between those two. That, is that a battle of Ohio there? <laughs> yeah, that too. Taking to LA. That too. Um, do you think, I, I, real quick, Hummer, do you think there's a chance that either Keith Williams or Chris Vogt is playing for the Bearcats next season? You're asking me or Hummer? Uh, you. <laughs> I don't think Hummer <laughs> he, he interrupted me, man. So this is I'm sorry. Season. I'm sorry, Hummer. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I wanted to um, comment on Diamond Hands Mason Madsen. I think that's a great <laughs> pick. Okay. I, Go ahead. I think everybody should be plowing their money into the Mason Madsen train and we're going to the moon. All right. We're getting some tendies. <laughs> I don't know what tendies are. <laughs> um, I don't think Keith, there's any chance he comes back. And I, I don't think that's anything, you know, other than like, I'm I'm kind of shocked on the football side how many guys just for Cincinnati, but also in general, have decided to come back. But I think you know he, he already tested the NBA waters last year. Um, I would be very very shocked if if Keith was back next year, and I would be pretty surprised if Vote was too. I think if you're picking which one is more likely to be back, it'd be Vote, and part of that's just purely based on um, Keith has I think better professional prospects at least. Um, in America. Um, but yeah, cause Chris votes going to, he's going to be dunking on people overseas for sure. Probably. But yeah, I, I guess I would lean towards both of them being gone um, next year for, for no reason other than like, you know, at some point it's people are just ready to, to move on to the, the next, next phase. Now does Sam Martin return. Is he going to, <laughs> is he going to be a graduate student? So, so there was, I can't even remember now if it was last year or two years ago, but there was like this rumor that he was going to study abroad for like a semester and, and wasn't going to come back. And someone, when they were correcting that rumor to me, described it as a nasty rumor. Like Sam Martin would never do that. Like he would not study abroad and miss out on, you know, such a nasty rumor. Yes. And I was just like, wow. So, you know, uh, PTSD, I I, by the way, with that phrase. So 
careful with that whole <laughs> nasty, but it's such a nasty rumor. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't be shocked if if Sam Martin um, was was back in some capacity, maybe as starting point guard based on those minutes he put in against uh, Tulane the other day. Mamadou came on this podcast, and I'm not sure he was supposed to, but um, <laughs> I think that's how we got blacklisted from player interviews. I'm pretty sure that's why we're never getting a, a Bearcat, you know, official interview again. But um, he on that podcast, amongst other things, he compared himself to Kevin Durant and a few other things. But he did really. <laughs> it, was, it was Michael Jordan. <laughs> it was Jordan, but then he dialed it down to KD. Um, yeah. Sam Martin, he did hype up and say that Sam Martin gets buckets of practice. And I think I've heard other people too say that he's one of the best bucket getters amongst walk-ons that we've had. So maybe there's some, there's some truth to uh, there's something behind him getting minutes, especially if it, if Zach Harvey can't get back soon, we'll see. I want to see him let it fly. I, I don't know about all that, but um, I think it was more things were going off the rails to start that half. And John Brandon was sending a message by, you know, sending Sam Martin and Rob Banks in the lineup that he did out there. But part of that message was him knowing like this, you know, this isn't going to be too big for Sam. He'll be able to handle and help drive home the point I'm trying to make, um, which, you know, if that's not the case, that point could totally backfire. So I think that that as much speaks to Sam Martin more than anything. I do think Rob Banks, I mean, Rob Banks, we got really excited about just because of the accent. We were very excited to hear, you know, given English presence, here in Cincinnati, he definitely has Jamal Lucas vibes. And I don't know if you guys both remember Jamal Lucas from back in the day now of Jordan brand, but he was a walk on and wasn't necessarily a guy you'd expect to get big minutes, but then worked his way into a rotation player because he was just awesome defensively and solid all around. Rob Banks kind of give me that vibe. Anything heist. That's, that's my nickname for Rob Banks heist. The heist. Yeah. The heist. I like it. The heist. I'm, I like. I'm. I'm sticking with that one. Rob Banks. Rob. But um, is he going to be working for Jordan Brand and help us secure a shoe deal? <laughs> I don't. Maybe like um Burberry or you know some international um brand. He he can he can bring a, a European flavor to the Bearcats. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, uh, I, I think again, I think it's like. It's it's a good situation if, if you're ever in a pandemic and you know are, are down to the bottom of your bench to but I'm being serious like to have yeah, a guy like no, that I know I don't know that I can necessarily picture him getting into a rotation, um, but you know it's I suppose it's possible I, I think the bigger thing is like they have a lot of respect for what those guys bring bring to the program every day in terms of locker room presence practice you know players things like that um, and that that should not be overlooked. Like that's a big deal too. So uh, whether that ever results in like real minutes, I don't know. I don't think so, but it, that shouldn't um, downplay what, what they've accomplished or what they've done so far. That could be me, my mental state deteriorating rapidly based on there being no recruits on the docket right now. And, you know, departures from the team. And I could just be shook from that. And just so I'm, I'm starting to picture Rob Banks is like, okay, I could, I could get behind Rob Banks as our starting four and, you know, small ball def defense, maybe finish around that. No, never mind. It was Temple in Tulsa. Come on. Or Tulane. Sorry. You, you got to <laughs> crimp down your expectations there. <laughs> Hummer, do you have any last uh, basketball questions for Justin? Because I did have a couple. Get to the stonk talk. 
This is before yeah. we get to the stonk, before we get to the crypto part of this podcast. Um, I do have a couple football I mean, we, questions. We have kind of just gla- glanced over that Jeremiah Davenport is like also evolving into so far one of the best players on the court this season, if not the best player on the court this season. I know yeah, it's not much he... of a question. It's more of a you know, <laughs> statement, but. <laughs> I think he needs to get more consistent. And, you know, Brandon talked about that after that Tulane game. Like, all right, he, you know, he didn't have his best game against Tulane. So how, how do you bounce back against Memphis? And I think that's kind of the next step you take into being a, a top level contributor, but I'm, I'm totally with you. I didn't think he was going to be in the rotation entering the season, which, uh, you know, just shows how weird things have gone, but also like, you know, how off base that was. Um, I thought he was going to be like kind of what he was last year. The energy guy you bring off the bench. Um, you know, he comes in and fires up a couple threes because he's not afraid to do that. He, he gets a steal and he gets everybody pumped up. And again, that's, I think that there was value in that. He, um, he is much, he's progressed a lot more than I thought he had, I think probably the most room to grow out of those, that trio of freshmen last year. But I think he's definitely done that and embraced that. And it's, it seems a little like ridiculous to say, but I think so much of it is just based on his confidence as a human and as a player. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And I think a lot of other players on the team could benefit from that kind of same mindset. And he was able to feed that without, you know, like totally going over the edge and, there were some games last year where like he came in and it was just the second he touched it, he was like firing it up. And he's definitely like, you know, gotten a little more under control, but at the same time he's gotten better. And um, yeah, I think he's used that confidence in all the right ways. And uh, I'm totally impressed by him. I think even the coaching staff, you know, they've gotten more out of him or at least quicker than they thought they would. Um, But no, he's, he's now like part of the core of this team moving forward. And I entering the season would not have guessed that. He was officially listed as our odd man out in the lineup this year when we were like projecting yeah, who would play, what the lineup's going to be. I was embarrassed to say that, that we had Jeremiah as the odd man out. And it's because he has been sloppy with the ball. He was a black hole last year with regard to shooting and he shot 14% from three. So it was just hard to envision what his role would be on the team. He's not like a dynamite dynamite athlete or anything, but instead he's completely blown me away. Um, if he does figure out a way to kind of control the turnovers and be a good decision maker, I definitely think he's going to be, huge asset for us for the rest of his career. I mean, that seems pretty clear at this point. I think it was a, a perfect example. You know, the coaching staff that were listening to the podcast, like, you know what? These guys are too right too many times. We're going to show them that Jeremiah Danport is in fact, one of the top three players on his team this year. And we're going to, we're going to, he gets the green light to let it rip. We're going to, we're going to go small, which they're asking us to do, but we're going to do it with Jeremiah Davenport. Yeah. We're going to throw it in their face <laughs> while also taking their clearly very good advice. Yeah, way to go, guys. You wanted us to go small and not play the six, seven forward who can shoot from three idiots. God, these guys. But he that's another example, too, of like there were some eyebrows raised when you know when Brandon brought him in. The same thing with Mason Madsen. Like Jeremiah was supposed to go to Wright State. Um, he had done a prep year, and I think people were like, Can this guy play at Cincinnati or is this just a shortened offseason bring in a local recruit type move? Are we just bringing in Mason because we want to get his brother Gabe? And you know, I, I think there's even, you know, yes, it's not the glitz of like Tari and Zach Harvey and David Julius, but there's some examples of knowing when a guy might fit your system um, and it kind of, you know, being shown true. For sure. I think we'll, we'll know for sure when they are winning basketball games uh, for the Bearcats and not just uh, the guys that play significant minutes on teams that 
finish under 500 in the athletic American athletic conference. I'm not going to go negative. I'm sorry. That was too negative. I apologize. I'm going to move it to football though. Um, a couple big hires made to replace Marcus Freeman. Um, and, uh, who, who was the running backs coach? Dan Enos. Dan Enos. I just uh, blanked out, blanked out on that, but they replaced them with Mike Tressel from Michigan state and Darren page. Anything Bearcat fans can glean from these hires? Like what it's hard to, as a, you know, if you're a casual fan, what am I really going to say about Mike Tressel or Darren page? What do you think, what were your takeaways from those replacements for, for Freeman and Enos? I mean, they were exact opposites in the fact that like, obviously um, Luke Fickle is very familiar with Mike Tressel. um, And, you know, they have a lot of common ties uh, that I think brought him there they didn't no one really knew Darren page. Like, you know, he got an interview and from everything I've heard, he just blew him away in the interview. Um, and, and he was good fit. And obviously like, you know, he's the running backs coach. That's, that's an important position. It's not, you know, on the same level as defensive coordinator. Um, but I think if you're just looking at each of them separately, like the Mike Trestle one makes a lot of sense. It made a lot more sense too, after he had his first press conference interview, because it was like, you know, Luke Fickle was holding cue cards of what he wanted to say, you know, behind the camera. Like he just, and it makes sense because I'm sure a lot of Luke's philosophy, whether it's as a coach or talking to media comes from Jim Tressel and Mark D'Antonio and obviously Mike Tressel's in that same tree. So I think he brought in someone he could trust, um, brought in someone who he knew, you know, could handle these really high expectations, a really talented um, and ambitious defense, but at the same time, also like someone who he's not afraid to say, here's what I think we need to do. Or, you know, there's just, there's a huge trust factor there. And there was that with Marcus Freeman too. This is even a little bit different. You know, I, I think Luke and Mike are more contemporaries, whereas, you know, Marcus certainly rose to that level, but it kind of started as like the mentor mentee relationship with, with those two, you know, Mike Tressel has run top 10, Big Ten off defenses um, in in recent memory, so uh, I think he's he he understood the opportunity this team has specifically this defense moving into next year, and he clearly felt like Mike Tressel was a guy, um, you know, who could uphold those. Whereas Darren Page, yeah, I mean, I, not to like just gloss over it, but I think they interviewed a few people for a position. Um, I think that position in particular is as much about um, recruiting and connecting with players as it is like kind of coaching and scheme and, and things like that. Uh, and I think they just got a guy who in who they were really impressed by and blown away by and, and felt it would be a good fit for them. Yeah. With Trestle, you know, that that's taking over a role. You're going to a program that's, you know, outside of the power five. It's not a, a power conference team necessarily uh, though. We, we've rehashed that we've litigated that, whole debate a million times over, but there's going to be a lot of pressure on Trestle taking over as defensive coordinator. When you consider how good that defense was last season. And now what the expectations are going to be with, you know, not just Ritter coming back, but Bryant and, you know, a lot of the core pieces are back this season uh, to try and replicate what was an incredibly amazing year for the Bearcats football program last season. Um, to, do you expect any sort of stylistic changes or is it more, Hey, join this program and kind of keep it going how it was? Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he said that early on, like we have some good players that, you know, we're not going to try and make them do things they don't want to do or can't do because they've proven what they can do. I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if they played a little bit more for four man front four down linemen. 
I actually think that might have been the case anyways, even if Marcus Freeman was back. And that's kind of just looking at the personnel they have. Getting Brooks and Brown back for the extra year of eligibility, bringing in Juwan Briggs. Like, they're just kind of stacked up front, especially on the interior. So um, I, I guess I wouldn't be shocked if they – not necessarily that it's their main, you know, defense necessarily, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they played a little bit more four down linemen than they played last year when it was a lot of three. But I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, Tressel was kind of cagey about it um, when we talked to him, understandably, um, and because uh, that's the way Luke Fickle is too. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm interested to see if things look different. And I think it'd be small things like, do they play as much press man on the outside as Marcus like Marcus Freeman like to play? What do they do with the sniper you know, position? Does it become a more traditional strong side linebacker? Um, do they play more traditional nickel with, with two linebackers, four linemen, five DBs? Those, you know, I, I don't think there's huge um, changes in there or adjustments in there, but I'm just kind of interested to see how those things look once we actually get on the field. Flex, that's not a good. I mean, that was I, that was way more detailed than I expected. Um, I, it, it does. I'm not going to go much deeper on the trestle thing. It seemed like a, a solid pick um, in terms of who we were actually who was being thrown around as a candidate. Um, and at the end of the day, the way I kind of look at all this stuff is we kept the head coach. You know, Freeman was a tough loss, but the what really matters in college football is who's who's the head of the snake and who's and if you, if you have the right head coach in place, trust them to keep the culture solid and and make the right hires and and go from there. So I think it's important that that Luke Fickle is still the head coach and because that is the case, we can have incredibly high expectations going forward no matter who is the coordinator next season. Yeah, you're right. And you know, this is the case at any school. This is not just like a, a- stepping stone program or a, a good group of five program if you are a really good program people are going to want your coordinators so like yeah they're keeping luke fickle but everyone wants alabama's coordinators everyone wants you know clemson's coordinators cincinnati's not on that level but you're basically in a situation where those coaches aren't leaving those situations so you're going to take the the guys below them you know to uc's credit and to luke fickle's credit he's still here so you can't expect to to keep your rising 34 year old hotshot defensive coordinator um who everyone you know pretty much says is is the one of the top assistants in college football yeah it would have been great if he would have hung around but like that's that's not realistic i don't think whether whether you're cincinnati or anywhere i mean knock on wood too it's was kind of relaxing knowing i don't want to say knowing but just not seeing luke fickle's name really popping up whether that's something he's just already told his agent i'm not interested or, you know, and it's just, I'm happy with where I'm at. Maybe he has the list of three jobs, you know, who knows? But I think it was finally relaxing one season to not go through the, oh my God, where is he going to interview this time? We yeah, I mean, a, I know. We had one I night know of tennis. panic. We had one night of panic. What right? was that? The NFL. The NFL, uh, the Eagles thing. And was well, that real? That was it real or not? The minute you brought that up, we shot that down. <laughs> it was real. The Eagles were interested in him, but I, I just don't. You know, it, it was the same thing. Like Tennessee wanted Luke Fickle, and and I'm I'm sure there were others out there, but like t- Luke Fickle was on Tennessee's shortlist. I just don't think there was ever any mutual interest on his side, and I think there's a lot similar could be said about the NFL. So Eagles Philly, Philly, Philly's media, the Philadelphia media, <laughs> since I live out here, I, I from what I heard, Luke Fickle wasn't wasn't really. He might have been talked about. 
because he's a great coach, but I don't think there was a, a genuine interest in, in the Philadelphia side of, of hiring a college coach. Well, they got a guy who's ready to simplify things and it's going to, Oh my God, they hate smart him already. Players he's, and... he's getting eaten alive out here and it's so good. <laughs> that hire. I, I wish I was, I wish I, can't I was imagine a... why Luke fickle wouldn't be interested in that. I know. I just, <laughs> well, we're just going to take everything and we're, we're going to, uh, uh, what do you call it? When you, um, you take something, you make it easy. We're going to simplify it. We're going to simplify everything. Oh, they crucified him and it was glorious. I wish we were an Eagles podcast. That's how amazing his opening press conference was. And um, yeah, I'm sure they wish they had Luke Fickle after that. Um, besides that, I, I did notice you wrote a, a couple weeks back, um, kind of a one-year recap of John Cunningham's first year at the helm. And it really did a good job reminding me of when he, not just when he became the AD for UC, but then how, again, what a, what a time to take over a program. Um, amidst COVID-19 and the biggest takeaway seemed like his goal year one was kind of prevent defense. How can we make this financially work? How can we say, how can we, you know, cut costs, save money, generate some extra revenue. That's, that's really seemed to be what he was hanging his hat on. Um, what were some of your biggest takeaways beside the financial component in terms of what John Cunningham's vision is for the Bearcats athletic program? Yeah, I think he's another, he's just the complete opposite of Mike Bone. Um, and not necessarily in uh, ambitions, but in kind of the way they go about, you know, voicing them or, or going after them. You know, I, I think Mike Bone did a, a great job here, but I, I just think uh, John Cunningham's completely different from a personality, you know, mindset approach. And so sometimes that can be seen as because Mike Bone was so much putting himself out there and such a vocal cheerleader for the program. Um, uh, you know, I think there have been people who are like, where is, where is John Cunningham on this? Um, and I, I don't think that's unfair criticism because I think that's part of the job is you at sometimes just have to kind of be the, the mouthpiece, you know, or the person who goes forward. It, you can't always be like putting it on your coaches or your players um, to do that. But uh, again, I think sometimes certain things just got um, put on him and, and I think he learned from those. And I, I think we've seen, you know, the, the past few months that, no, he's he's probably never going to be as as outspoken as someone like Mike Bone, but I, I think he has adapted um, in the role, both just in general and also with all the nonsense he's had to deal with, um, you know, from a, from a COVID standpoint. So yeah, I, I'm with you. It's it's not the same situation as John Brandon, but I think part of it is like let's get out of this and get things back to normal, and then maybe you know, then let's start to kind of see. All right, what are you know, what's your approach, what's your long-term vision and, and how is all of that playing out? But I think so much of his first year was, yeah, just like, how do I sort out this ridiculous mess, you know, that I and everyone else have inherited, but I'm doing it um, in a new city, a new job as a first time AD. And from that standpoint, it, it hasn't been easy and it hasn't been perfect, but I think he's done a pretty good job. Do you think, I know you, I know you addressed it in the article somewhat. Um, do you think he, would do would he be more assertive with regard to like the college football playoff the team standing how they were being treated in the rankings and and look when i say this i'm not it's not that john cunningham you know burning down everything in the media would have changed anything 
but in terms of what it would have meant to fans, what it would have meant to boosters, do you think he does that differently and is more assertive in hindsight? Maybe. I mean, I think you could certainly make an argument for that. And yeah, I, I did kind of get at that in the piece. I think if you're talking from his perspective, he's thinking I'm a brand new first time AD. Um, and you know, what, what will my fellow ADs in the conference, what will my, you know, conference administration think if like, basically I come in right away and I'm just, I'm out there. I'm, you know, yeah. What if he was basically like the Danny white of, you know, of the American or, or the Mike bone of the American um, right into the job. And certainly if you're like thinking from the UC perspective, you'd be like, screw that. I don't, you know, care what those people think or, or we want to get out of this conference anyway. Well, he's the one that has to sit in those meetings and deal with those people on a day-to-day basis. So I do think it's a little bit different. So, yeah, I think, I don't know that he would do it differently. I think that was one of those experiences where he's looking at it from like, this certainly isn't a, a place for me to like put myself out there or, you know, raise a bunch of hell. And then maybe he, he saw like, well, here would have been the benefit of doing that. Or here's maybe, you know, I could have just done one interview or something that, that kind of made my, my feelings a little bit more public. So yeah, whether he would do it differently, I don't know, but I certainly think something like that was a, a learning experience for him. And would you say the, the financial situation with the university, uh, one, one of the biggest things that's jumped out to me that I learned is how much money they're getting from the university directly, meaning the athletic department. Um, that, that situation is probably why anybody who's talking hot seat with regard to Brandon or anything remotely close to that, A, they need to give him more time just to evaluate him and, and really see how things play out. But B, that's certainly going to hamstring your ability to probably make decisions like you see down in Texas when they're, they're paying out Tom Herman, however many millions of dollars to replace him with a coordinator that had the easiest job in college football. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even, I, I don't think that has factored into like the, the John brand decision at all. I, I don't think it's been like, you know, well, financially we couldn't make a move. I, I, I think it's the first part you said, which is like, they, they feel confident. John Cunningham didn't make that hire, but I, you know, uh, everything I've heard, he fully believes in, in John Brandon and wants to give him time. And he should, for all the reasons we've talked about on this podcast, I think any, anyone making that point would be um, short-sighted and, and premature, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of inherent challenges um, to being a program as good and ambitious as Cincinnati is at the you know level they're at in terms of conference financials and and things like that. You know everything this conference or everything this team program has done over the past decade, really, really since they left the Big East, is geared towards how do we get back to a power conference and all of the financial benefits that come with that. But they're, you know, people see that stuff. They see the renovations. They see keeping Luke Fickle and, and they want to keep doing things like that. You know, what can we do to improve the program and the facilities and keep the coaches? But the realities are is like there's, you know, there are some financial constraints to that. Um, the university has clearly, you know, said we're, we're going to fund this. We're going to give you $30 million a year. And that would be a totally separate podcast. My my financial athletic department knowledge is just barely better than my stock knowledge, but <laughs> it's not as like simple a transaction as the university gives athletic department $30 million. Like, you know, it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that, but it's a huge financial commitment and it's not one that's going to last forever, but it's clearly one that they feel like will help get them to a level they want to get to. 
that enough. Um, Hummer, you got any last kind of parting thoughts for Justin? I want to pick his brain on anything basketball, football, or, or otherwise related. What are you watching these days, Justin? What are you watching yeah. outside of UC sports? What were you watching during the hiatus? You know, you don't have to watch, not really, you know, following the basketball team day to day as much during that time, or at least having to commit two hours for a game. What, what were you uh, turning on at the house? That's a good question. I haven't been watching anything too exciting. Um, I did just watch the the new Denzel uh, Rami Malek movie that they put on on HBO, The Little Things. It's like pretty good, you know. First, I was into the first two thirds more than the, the last third. Um, but I don't have anything too exciting. My wife and I are—we've never watched Shit's Creek. We're watching that right now um so good on netflix yeah i'm enjoying that very much but that's really that's really all i got it's a lot of like um you know doc mcstuffins vampirina uh you know what else mickey mouse stuff like that frozen watch a lot of frozen in my house so i'm I'm, I'm ashamed to say that when i do have free time i spend it talking to talking to you guys and oh so generous and watching Pac-12 basketball and things like that. Pac-12 man, it made me feel very guilty uh, saying that this is how you're spending your spare time. One thing, <laughs> one thing I got into <laughs> with the, with the, with the wife recently. And, and I just needed, I need to get it off my chest cause I loved it so much, but the crown, um, which is the otherwise called the crown, just an absolutely incredible watch. Oh, I would have the Spanish crown. I would have never <laughs> expected the crown. I would have never expected that I enjoyed that so much, but the drama, the, the horrid nature of the monarchy. And this is, you know, I was not someone who was bullish on it to begin with, but I'll tell you what, the way they treated, and I'm talking like John Gruden, but the way they treated Princess Diana, man, totally unfair. Um, I'd recommend it. Anyone out there? Hey, it's not a documentary. It's entertainment. All right. It's entertainment. Well, it's, it's real. It's real. (laughs) Now this this past weekend, actually, I got into something that that you guys could do if you want something different, a little Bollywood action. Oh, the White uh, Tiger, amazing. Oh no, a real Bollywood movie. Oh, Come on, okay. um, it's called Three Idiots. This is this is an old one. It's a friend of ours from India Point uh, made us watch this, and at first I was really like uh, skeptical. Uh, it's from two thousand nine, but it's just called Three Idiots. And it's about like three. I don't want to call them idiots, but three people who who are. Like, have to go to uh, engineering school in India. Two on the nose. Yeah, and it's like it's it's just like this really, really big deal, but it's uh it turned out to be like a funny movie, a drama, uh like a, a musical all wrapped in the one. It's incredible. I highly suggest watching it. It's it's worth your time. Good wreck. Where where can you get it? Netflix. Netflix? Okay. Oh yeah. Netflix has a really they have a high quality selection it looks like of uh Bollywood films. Uh, they were they were scrolling through, pointing them out, and you know, they gave us they gave us a good list of of movies to check off there. But White Tigers was apparently not a true Bollywood film. Gotcha. It didn't have that enough. Fifteen ninety nine a month, a good use, <laughs> Hummer. Seventeen ninety nine now. They have increased hey. prices again. Uh, the streaming wars is out of control. We have to do something. We have. This to really is like a financial <laughs> podcast. I didn't realize. You said it's seventeen ninety nine now. Jeez, I'm about to well, cancel. That. Look, Justin, they were on a huge hiatus and <laughs> a lot of content. We needed something. 
We still need more games. All right. We needed we needed to we needed to pay homage. All right. We needed other things to pay homage to. Twenty one percent off slang in at checkout. Keep it in mind. All right, Justin, we'll let you go. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast. Find Justin's work at the Athletic. If you're not subscribed, do it. Great content all around. Not just I mean, Justin's obviously blowing it out of the water, uh, but NBA, NHL, soccer. I think they've introduced some new gambling. Uh, content now on on the site. Good friend of mine started the business. I'm obviously partisan to that, but it really is tremendous stuff at The Athletic. So if you're not subscribing, do it. Find Justin's work there. And Justin, thanks for coming on the Cincy Slang and Bearcat podcast, sir. Always a pleasure. I uh, I hope the next time we talk, it's not after a 25-day layoff, but it was good good to talk to you guys again. Great to see you. Have a good one, buddy. As always.